This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey everyone, here's a reading summer suggestion for you, from me. The Dirty Dozen was a blockbuster combat movie that broke the mold. Its startling plot about angry criminals and misfits forced into a suicide mission by people in power resonated with audiences living through the political turmoil, societal change, and the escalation of the Vietnam War. Its cast was an ensemble of World War II veterans turned actors and then unknowns launched onto a star-bound trajectory. The controversial movie went on to become an unanticipated sleeper hit, won an Academy Award, and is now in the pantheon of classic combat flicks. The new book, Killing Generals, The Making of the Dirty Dozen, the most iconic World War II movie of all time, is a riveting must-read for military fans, film buffs, and anyone who loves a down-and-dirty adventure tale. Killing Generals is available everywhere books are sold. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 418, The Show Must Go On. Last time, the day was August 13, 1942, and the remaining ships of Operation Pedestal were only 100 miles away from Malta. But the Axis knew this too, so with the sunrise came wave after wave of air attacks. The attack that further damaged the tanker Ohio and doomed the merchant ship Dorset, had pushed Commander Edward Gibbs of the Pathfinder just a bit too far. He would be ready for the next one. That next enemy formation, on its way from Pantelleria, had flown through some dark clouds and winds, which unnerved the pilots a bit, but that was nothing compared to being told that enemy spitfires from Malta were now in the area. And indeed, those very island-based planes found this formation before it reached pedestal. By the time the fights were over, fewer Axis planes were able to engage the ships. At 11.20 a.m., one Italian Sparrowhawk, hoping to get lucky, dropped his torpedo, though he was relatively far away. The ships immediately threatened, the Pathfinder being one of them, had plenty of time to react and avoid. But... Commander Edward Gibbons had had enough. He would later write, 
one can get tired of being attacked by aeroplanes. We had to alter course to avoid torpedoes, so we decided to do the attacking ourselves. We increased speed to 30 knots and turned straight out to seaward to meet the Savoyas. And when the enemy planes came over, and they were only at mast height, it was a quick moment of action, followed by soul-wrenching waiting. Gibbs went on, The noise was tremendous, and I personally remember this as the most exhilarating and enjoyable moment of the war. The nearest Savoya was almost within biscuit toss, and the whole formation was surrounded by shell bursts and streams of tracer bullets, through which they dived, twisted, and climbed, dropping their torpedoes in almost all directions except that of the convoy. As for the attacking planes, one was set in a flame, but the others were able to make for home. With the attack broken up, Gibbs had the Pathfinder reverse course to rejoin the merchant ships, for there would be more attacks. Yet the Italian pilots had come closer to success than they realized. As the string of torpedoes were coming at the ships, Captain Henry Pinckney of the Port Chalmers had the ship turn hard to comb the nearest two torpedoes. This worked until it didn't. The first torpedo went under the ship, close, but something they could all live with. As for the second torpedo, that came down the starboard side. It suddenly disappeared, and everyone held their breath. Suddenly, the anti-mine paravane, think large fishing net attached to a long metal pole, started to shake. Pinckney guessed what was going on and had the paravane raised. That second torpedo was within its netting. First Officer Bill Craig went over to cut it loose, which, now free, it sank to the bottom and exploded. And though it was very far away from the ship, the entire Port Chalmers rose out of the water due to the shockwave. And not even 30 minutes later, at 11.40 a.m., 14 German Stukas arrived and went after the Dorset. As we saw last time, though fraught with confusion and a lack of communication between the various ships and protective fighters overhead, the Dorset was doomed, though her death took several hours. Getting back to the threat from above, the last squadron to attack the ships on the 13th left Sicily at 2.45 p.m. They were JU-88s. For whatever reason, they approached the North African coast somehow behind the convoy. Still, as they patrolled the northwestern shoreline of Tunisia, they soon spotted two subs on the surface. Well, it wasn't a merchant ship, but it would have to do. The attack run was made, the first sub got away, but not the second. It suffered damage and wounded crew. Only later, though, would the pilots find out that the two subs had been their own, the Alagi and Desi. Further, they lost one of their more popular officers, Lieutenant Guido Barani. Of course, there had been a discussion after this amongst the pilots about whether or not another sortie was justified. But between this and that, this being the weather and that being the death of a friend, it was decided they would wait until tomorrow to attack the ships again. But going back earlier that morning, we've seen the Ohio hit hard as it dodged the burning and sinking Wairama. Early on, the gunmen of the Ohio, like the other ships, figured out the Germans' little diversionary trick. By having a few planes attack from one direction with all guns blazing to attract attention, 
while the main attack came from another direction. And the German pilots paid for this newfound knowledge. A Stuka was shot down during the 8 a.m. attack, and as we have seen, not one but two German planes crash-landed on the tanker. When the Ohio finally caught up to the convoy and to Admiral Burrow, he kept an eye on her as he knew that she would be the main target, and he was right. The Admiral got to watch as six bombs were dropped at the Ohio, with three going to each side, but just barely. The good news was that there was no direct strikes, but as we saw, the Fort Peak tank was opened and flooded. The Ohio was down at the bow. During the morning attacks, the Ohio's chief engineer, James Wilde, performed miracles as if it was routine. The engine had first gone out 12 hours ago with an intense torpedo attack, but Wilde brought it back, and he would end up bringing it back at least six more times that day, according to Captain Mason. Around 11 a.m., Lieutenant Commander Roger Hill and his Leadberry caught up to the Ohio. This was before the tanker caught up to Admiral Burrow. At the moment, the Ohio was doing four knots in between her stops and starts as her engine died and was repaired. Hill said, let's lash them together and we should be able to get up to 12 knots. Whether that's true or not is debatable, but it never happened. Hill got a radio message about another merchantman needing help, and so he and his dashed away. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill, and I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house in getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. Sometime that morning, Admiral Burrow had sent a message to Hill, ordering the Leadberry back to Gibraltar. As this was not what Hill wanted to do, he used the old sketchy message routine and stayed where he was. But there really were radio issues occurring. That same morning, Vice Admiral Sir Ralph Latham, on Malta, who since the beginning of the year was made Superintendent Malta Dockyard and Flag Officer in Charge Malta, who had a better idea than Burrow of what was going on, sent a message to Burrow, who did not get it, that he advised the Ledbury go back to pick up survivors from Manchester. Burrow didn't even know the ship had been scuttled. This message, Lieutenant Commander Hill heard as well, and as it was action this day, his favorite thing, he decided to follow the order. On their way, the Leadberry was set upon by two torpedo bombers, 
The alarms went off, and Hill ran to the bridge. As gung-ho as the man was, he had already divided his crew into two shifts, so somebody was always getting rest, readying for the next attack. And here it was. This time, Hill ordered his bigger guns to hold off. Let the pilots think they were damaged or unresponsive. Perhaps they'll come in closer. The planes did, and soon they were going down. Two smoking, twisted wrecks. But an aggressive warrior is predictable and can expose himself. As Hill was shouting good shooting to the crew who were cheering the outcome, someone yelled, Torpedo! It had been another diversion. Hill had the vessel come hard aport and the torpedoes missed, but by inches. As the deadly fish went by and the remaining planes flew away, Hill decided he had a question for his staff. Coxon, what are the regulations about splicing the main brace? This was an expression that dated to the days of Nelson for tapping the rum. Don't know, sir. I think it's when the king visits the fleet or something special happens. Well, Coxon, I think this is a special occasion. Pipe round the ship. Splice the main brace, including all survivors. Stand fast, the hunt. The whole ship was cheering hard, and after this, everything went with a swing, Hill later said. Forty-five minutes later, the crew spotted land. Hill, and this might have been the alcohol talking, told his crew, Hey, you know what? It's possible that some of the Manchester's crew might be on land over there, and they could be in the hands of Arabs, or even worse, Frenchmen. So let's go ashore like pirates of old, kill everybody before us, and rescue our friends. They came back empty-handed, as the destroyers Eskimo and Somali had already picked up those on land. The rest had already been taken away to be interred. As Pedestal was, more or less, 100 miles from Malta, the bowfinders and spitfires from the island would be on patrol today. It was expected that they, more than the destroyers or cruisers, would protect the merchantmen from air attacks. Also, with Admiral Burrow having only limited radio access to his ships, and none with the planes overhead, Rear Admiral Latham would take more and more control of this last leg of the convoy. Things were looking up after appearing dismal for so many ships for so long. The gunners on all the ships were told by now friendly aircraft was overhead to be more circumspect when firing. The pilots appreciated this, but kept their distance regardless. And because Malta was sending fighters to protect the convoy, sometimes four planes at a time, and the enemy knew that this was their last day to sink the ships, the day was full of air battles, dogfights, anything to decrease the number of enemy planes in the air. Both sides were vying for this, and a few examples should suffice. As the day wore on, planes from both sides fell out of the sky, the pilot dead or the plane too damaged to continue on. Messerschmitts, Stukas, or Ju-87s, Ju-88s, not to mention older flying buffaloes and the Thunderbolts were lost that day. Sometimes the pilot and crew as well. Pilot Dickie Cork, who flew a sea hurricane and had previously taken off from the Indomitable, helped out with six kills, either alone or in tandem. And his is a story to hear. 
As a fighter pilot for the fleet air arm of the Royal Navy, Cork had seen action in the Arctic and Indian Oceans, and now he was in the Mediterranean. Just months earlier, he had been involved in an air attack on Vichy French guns at Diego Suarez Bay, Madagascar, back in May. Magic decrypted messages, picked up and made clear by the U.S. Army's Signal Intelligence Section, SIS, and the U.S. Navy's Communications Special Unit, revealed that Berlin was asking Tokyo to seize Madagascar to further weaken the Allies' ability to project power in the region. Washington could only read Tokyo's side of the conversation, but it was enough. Thus, Madagascar had to be taken, which is another story. But just the day before the current timeline, on August 12, 1942, Cork became the only Royal Navy pilot to shoot down five aircraft in one day. He would receive the DSO, or Distinguished Service Order, later that year. In a sea hurricane, a plane that he had only been flying for a year, on this special day, just after noon, Cork took out a Savoia Marchetti SM-79 as it was sizing up the convoy. I guess that pilot took too long. Next, while near the coast of Tunisia, he had helped shoot down two JU-88s. Still that day, he shot down a Messerschmitt BF-110 and then another Savoia Marchetti SM-79. But fate, as we have seen, can be as cruel as she is fair. Before the war was over, Cork would die in a flying accident. Still, during pedestal, he had made a difference. Adrian Warby, don't tell me what to do, Warburton, was there as well. He spent his time patrolling in between Sardinia and Cape Bon, as reconnaissance was his strength. Well, that, and not caring about what anybody thought about anything, ever. There was also Captain Walter Churchill, but he would be dead two weeks later over Sicily. And least, but not last, was Canadian George Buzz Burling, or Screwball, as he would be called. During one of these patrols, Screwball and two others found a lone JU-88 at 18,000 feet. Screwball decided to have some fun. Here's how he tells it. He gets on the radio and he says, Look out, here I come! As he dives past the JU-88, he lets loose with a two-second burst. It was apparently enough as the starboard engine fell away from the JU-88. Simultaneously, the plane itself burst into flame. None of the four crewmen had had time to get clear. Screwball moved on and once again was on the hunt. One last air battle. During that day, an American pilot was flying a bowfighter with a Scottish observer in back. The plane was hit and went down. The American died, but the Scot, Jock McFarlane, survived and floated on the surface of the Mediterranean in his May West. Only after darkness did two Italian airmen come upon Jock in their dinghy. They had been shot down as well. The three men floated for around 60 hours before being picked up by a German flying boat. McFarlane became a prisoner, but it was better than the alternative. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Meanwhile, the destroyer Penn was making 30 knots, trying to catch up to Burrow. On board, besides the normal complement, were the survivors of the Empire Sun and Santa Elisa. And being so overcrowded, no one could truly rest, as there was no place to lie down. Still, the badly burned had ointment lathered all over them and told to find a place to sit. For those in unbelievable pain, they were given regular doses of morphine. It was the compassionate thing to do. Lonnie Dales, his forearm broken, and Fred Larson, again of the Santa Elisa, were on board as well. But their fates and story are far from over. It was then that one of their fellow gunners, Follinsby, cursed as he told his comrades that he had left the briefcase in the lifeboat. That briefcase held $2,000 to pay for their food once they got to Malta. Larson, having more experience, wished Fallingby had kept his damn mouth shut. Suddenly, all around the room wanted to get rid of this empty-handed gunner in the most painful way imaginable. But Larson decided to distract them instead. They all knew that the pen was moving at 30 knots, so he said it would take a pretty lucky shot to hit this baby, which is when one of the other men observed were slowing down. Indeed, the pen was coming to a halt as it approached the Ohio, which was dead in the water. This is what Fallensby would write of this moment. A dive bomber had crashed on her foredeck, and we could make out the wreckage of the plane even from our distance. And when they got closer, only then could they see the bullet holes, the blistered paint, and the damaged superstructure. For the next two hours, the pen slowly circled the Ohio, making an assessment of the tanker's damage and seaworthiness. Then the loudspeaker blurted out to the men on the pen, Survivors will stand by after to assist with tow lines. The 10-inch tow rope was given from the front of the Ohio to the back of the pen, but try as they might, the Ohio was proving difficult to control. Captain Mason suggested either a destroyer needed to be tied to the side of Ohio, or else two destroyers were needed, one to tie up just in front of the tanker and one just behind her. One could pull and the other could help steer. Before the pen had shown up, the Ohio was still being attacked from the air. As such, Captain Mason now called over to the destroyer to see if any of his crew could be put aboard the pen. This was agreed to at 2 p.m. But considering everything, everyone was taken off the Ohio. She would be abandoned. Now the destroyer pen had survivors from the Santa Elisa, the Empire Hope, and now the Ohio. The Ohio was still above the waves, but she was slowly sinking. It was while the men of the rescue crews were talking that a junior officer of the pen approached Captain Mason, and he said, Captain Swain would like to see you, sir, if you don't mind. 
Mason did not mind. Captain Swain of the pen needed help. He needed answers, for at 1.50 p.m. he had sent a message to Admiral Burrow saying that the Ohio cannot tow by myself, she will not steer. But the reply he got did not come from Burrow, again bad communications, but rather Admiral Latham on Malta, who said, you must make every endeavor to tow. What Latham could have added was that the Malta-based planes were currently using fuel recently arrived from Alexandria, having been transported in subs, a short-term solution at best. Ohio and its contents were needed in Malta. Around this time, Fred Larson of the Santa Elisa estimated that Ohio was sinking about two feet every hour. Back to Captains Mason and Swain, they agreed that lashing their two ships together, which would severely reduce their speed, would be suicide when the next air attack came. No, something else was needed. Something where the pen could be untethered so she could respond in kind when the next attack came. Hence, the ocean minesweeper Rye and two motor launches were sent to them from Malta. These three could help tow, and Penn could keep an eye out. For now, the plan was for Mason's men to get some rest while still on the Penn, but after sundown, to return to the Ohio, to be ready to tow her and to man the guns, for everyone knew they would be needed again. And while it's always good to have a plan, that did not mean that tension had in any way been reduced. One of the other two merchant captains, it was either Williams or Thompson, said under their breath that they hoped the Ohio would simply go down. That way, they could all be taken to shore. Yet one of the Ohio's crewmen heard this and had to be physically restrained from throwing that captain overboard. You do not talk about a man's ship. And whether it was the same captain or not, A short while later, some merchant captain made his way to Penn's bridge and asked that he and his be put ashore, as in, it is better to be a prisoner than to go down. But Swain, with Lethem's words still ringing in his ears, shouted, Get the hell off this bridge! My mission is to bring this tanker in, and that's what I'm going to do. The minesweeper Rye and the two motor launches came on the scene at 5.40 p.m. Just after that, the entire crew of the Ohio returned to the tanker, which is a story in itself, as well as what they would endure for the next few hours. The Germans and Italians had no intention of letting the Ohio reach Malta and sent enough planes to get the job done. Lonnie Dales, Fred Larson, Captain Mason, Fallensby, and the rest would have to go through a fresh batch of hell. Meanwhile, the pilots and the men on the deck guns were working overtime to send each other to that very same place. <laughs> 